Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and uh, let's turn to the book of Proverbs uh, here tonight. And I'm going to just try to give you some thoughts here from the book of Proverbs from a series of several verses here tonight that deal with diverse thoughts. And so we'll consider them as we uh, consider the last part of chapter 15 here tonight. Uh, Last week looked at the importance of counsel and we looked at the absence of counsel can lead to disappointment. We looked at the presence of counsel can lead to safety. We looked at the piece of good advice uh, that you can have and gain wisdom from. And so again, we looked at some thoughts there on the subject of counsel. But here tonight, I'd like to look at some common sense wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Common sense wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Again, the message here tonight is not maybe going to teach you really anything. It may teach you some things. But again, I think these are some common sense things that are mentioned here in the book of Proverbs. And they should be emphasized here tonight. And so I'd like to consider them here as we read through the last few verses there in the book of Proverbs. Starting in verse number 23, it says, A man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? The way of life is above to the wise, that they may depart from hell beneath. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow. The thought of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. The heart of the righteous studieth the answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoice the heart, and a good report maketh the bones fat. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise, and he that refuses instruction despises his own soul. But he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before humility, for before honor is humility. And I'm going to bring you some common sense wisdom here from the book of Proverbs. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you again for your word here tonight. We thank you again for this opportunity we have to be in your house. Again, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to take in the wisdom that the Proverbs gives us and help us by your grace to apply it to our lives. Help us with this. We ask this in Jesus' name for sake. Amen. As you look at some common sense wisdom from Proverbs, uh, some of these thoughts in the book of Proverbs are repeated over and over again. And so here tonight, we will see some maybe some common themes that maybe we've talked about to some degree before, but we'll see them here again here tonight. And so I'm going to consider seven common sense thoughts on wisdom here found here in the last few verses. There's more than that, but again, I'll just point out these ones here tonight. First of all, I'd like to look at the, the reality that we need to seek to speak words that bring joy or encouragement to the hearer. We see that in verse number 23. We'll look at that here in just a moment. But we need to speak words that bring joy or encouragement to the hearer. Number two, from verse 24 and verse number 25, I like us to understand that finding the way of life is important to avoid the dangers of death and destruction. 
which we see in verse number 24 and 25. And then we see thirdly, again, that's a common theme here throughout the scriptures, but we see here in verse number 27, the need to avoid greedy gain. And so we'll see that here also tonight. And then also I look, want to look at here tonight that we need to take time to offer prayer to God because we will hear our, have our prayers answered. And then I want to point out there towards the end there in verse number 31 that we need to be a good listener. And then verse 32, we need to embrace reproof and correction. And so just want to discuss these thoughts here tonight, some common sense thoughts from Proverbs, starting in verse number 23. We need to seek to speak and communicate words that bring joy or encouragement to the hearer. We see that in verse 23. It says, A man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? Now, whether this deals with counsel or not, I do not know, but we can find joy by the answer or the speaking or communication that comes from a, a person's mouth. A man or woman can bring joy to a person through good and helpful counsel offered at any given time. And so we see, again, the ability to spread joy through communication. And so we wonder how I could communicate something that would make someone happy or joyous. Uh, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. How could I communicate something that would cause someone to be encouraged? Again, if we, we look at our lives and we look at the things that we need to be focused on and things that uh, should be done through the church and by the church on a regular basis, we find here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 23 through verse number 24, it talks about the need for encouraging others in the will of God. And some familiar verses, but I want to read them nonetheless here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The Bible says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of herself together as the man of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Bible mentions here this thought here of considering one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So we should be encouraging others towards good and those things that are right. In that process of being part of a church, we should be in a position where we are seeking to exhort other others, uh, one another, through words, through deeds, through conversations, through sharing of, again, again, experiences in life. And so we know, again, we can sometimes encourage others through simply just a few words. Let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 147. You know, I don't know whether you receive from time to time maybe texts or emails or phone calls or whatever it might be that might be encouragement to you. And I just want to say this, I don't often get texts or phone calls and things that maybe are encouragement to me, but I do get them from time to time. And even this morning, I got a text this morning and it was simply here, Psalm 147, verse number 11. I believe, again, the person who sent this text to me was trying to be encouragement to me. And it simply says this, Psalm 147, verse 11, it says that the Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. It's a good verse. 
You know, sometimes you wonder, hey, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I going in the right path? Am I following the right truth, so to speak? The Bible says, the Lord taketh pleasure and then the fear it, and those that hope it is mercy. God gets pleasure from his people. It says there, and uh, we should hope for his mercy. You know, when it comes to bringing cheer or bringing, again, news that would encourage someone along the way, uh, someone might say, well, how can I do this? It could be through advice. It could be through sharing advice. It could be in sharing a burden with someone else. Uh, Turn back to our text there in Proverbs chapter 15. I think about, again, some people that offer financial advice. And I think about Dave Ramsey and and again, I'm not saying I agree totally with Dave Ramsey and all the things he teaches. But, you know, he gets to the point where he teaches people about financial freedom and being wise financially. And, and they get to the point where they basically have the ability, you know, on a show basically to, to hurrah themselves for being debt free. And they basically say, we're debt free. We are debt free. And I believe there's, again, some, again, I think with a person that's debt-free, I think there's, again, a good position for them to seek to be in. And so, again, you, you think, again, about advice and, and help and communication, encouraging people. Dave Ramsey's whole show is center around helping people to be more debt-free, to be in a better place in many ways financially. And after, again, he helps people with that, and he helps them through that, they find encouragement many times in the end. You know, we can't always be encouragers, but the Bible would teach us that communication has the ability to bring us joy or gladness. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 12, verse number 25. Some people, again, when you're around them, they, they encourage you, they help you, they seek to uplift you, they try to be a blessing to you. Uh, they may, again, try to cheer you up when you're sad or Encourage you maybe if you're maybe out of sorts in some way. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse number 25, communication, talking, speaking, all these things can do this. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, it says, Heaven is in the heart of a man, maketh him to stoop, but a good worketh, good word maketh it glad. So someone can have some heaviness and a good word can bring encouragement to that person. Encourage you to spread good news, good words, encouraging words where you can. It can be a help to those in distress, those in trials. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Spending a little extra time maybe on this first point here tonight, but let me encourage you to seek to communicate words that build and encourage other believers. Now I understand, again, you can't always do that. Sometimes the words that you might speak to them about, may discourage them or maybe put them in a place where they need to be because maybe their words are reproof or whatever it might be. But First uh, Samuel chapter 23, verse number 13, as a friend, part of a responsibility to other friends is to seek to encourage them. And I see again a great example of this in the Old Testament when David was in distress and Jonathan came to him as a friend. And so I want to just read through this. You're familiar with this, but we'll read here, uh, beginning in verse number 13. 
1 Samuel 23:13. It says, Then David and his men that were about 600 arose and departed to Kalilah, and went whither so they could go. It was told Saul that David had escaped from Kalilah, and he forbade to go forth. David abode in the wilderness in stronghold and remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him out of it, uh, not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come to seek, seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee. And thou shalt be king of Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that Saul, that also Saul my father knoweth. That goes on from there, but uh, you see a, a place in the Bible where you see someone encourage someone else. Again, who should encourage us in a place maybe where we're down, or where we, in this case, under fire from other individual? You see a friend coming along, encouraging and exhorting, David there, Jonathan, a true friend, seeking to build, encourage, and bring joy to David, who needed some encouragement. So we see some common sense wisdom here. Seek to be a communicator that brings joy or builds or encourages other people. Let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 15. As we look here back at Proverbs 15, there's another thought here in the Word of God I'd like to again consider here tonight. We find here in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 24, the Bible says, The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. What does this teach to some degree? It doesn't teach exactly this, but it teaches we need to find the way of life to depart from danger, from death, and from destruction. Look at verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow. We need to find the way of life to avoid the dangers and destruction of hell. You say, how can I go about finding the way of life? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, which talks about how we can find the way of life doesn't give us exactly the answer as to where or how we can find the way of life, but it mentions here some things about the way of life. And so I want to just look at this briefly here. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 13, it says, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there, go that, uh, many there be that go there in it, because straight is innate, the gate, and Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So someone says, I want to find the way of life. Well, it's not going to be on a broad road or broad way, verse number 23. It means it's going to be, verse 14, a narrow way that leads to life. And as you study you by that narrow way that leads to life, is, it comes through Jesus. It comes by grace. It comes through the blood. It comes through the gospel. If you want to find life, there's a narrow way. It's not a broad way of religion or broad way of whatever you might think it might be to find life. 
but by one way that leads to life. Let's turn to John chapter 6. Again, talking about this, I'm just going to briefly mention here tonight that find the way of life to avoid the dangers of destruction is going to take some work on your part. You're going to have to seek to find it. Matthew mentions that. You're going to seek to find it. Luke chapter 13, 24 says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to have to press into it. And so you're going to have to use some effort on your part to find the way of life. John chapter 6, verse 29 gives us the answer to where we can find life. And I just want to just mention this in verse 29. I, I normally point this out when it comes to people when it comes to salvation because it's a very, very good verse uh, dealing with the thought of how we can be saved. It says in verse 29, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, this is the work of God that you believe on him we have sent. You must believe on him who we have sent. Not just believe in him, but on him who we have sent. Look at verse 40, same chapter. And this is the will of him, them that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last, uh, last day. In verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And so to find the way of life, you must find the way of Jesus. Not only find the way of Jesus, but you must believe on him as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, as sin bearer, as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. You must believe on Jesus. Any other way will not lead to life. Let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 15. Common sense thoughts here shared in the word of God. Find the way of life to avoid the way of death and destruction. Thirdly, we see here another common sense thought here shared in the book of Proverbs here is to avoid the greed of gain. We see this in Proverbs 15, verse number 27. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. He that is greedy of gain. What does it mean to be greedy? It means to desire in excessive manner wealth or possessions or things or something to be greedy. You think about greedy creatures, greedy animals, greedy people. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. How can you trouble your house? How can you trouble your house being greedy of gain? Uh, most people believe, and I, I tend to believe this too, that this reference here about greedy gain, uh, again, goes back and, and, uh, and uh, speaks about, to a large degree, this, this passage here back in Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's not a direct reference or a cross-reference to it, but again, I believe, again, when it talks about the greed of gain troubling one's house, because it mentions gifts there that, Again, the judge or someone in authority or power needs to be careful about not taking gifts uh, to, again, pad their, themselves and, and that sort of thing. Judges mentioned some things about this too, but Deuteronomy chapter 16, I want to pick up there in verse number 18. It says, A judge is an officer shalt thou make to thee in thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, uh, throughout the tribes, they shall judge the people with just judgment. 
Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. And so we find here in the Bible that we are not to take gifts as judges. Greedy, crooked judges, greedy, crooked politicians will take gifts and others will take gifts and bribes to pervert judgment. And this is probably the primary uh, thoughts that this might be well talking about. But let's turn, if you would, over to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, greed of gain or seeking things on a continual basis or seeking, so to speak, to be rich are things that we should avoid as Christians. We should be, I believe, in a position where we seek to gain so that we can give. Uh, certainly that is something taught in the Word of God. We do gain things uh, by hard work or what it might be, by diligence or whatever it might be, or wisdom. And uh, as a result of those things, be able to gain something that so, so that we might give. Uh, this is a principle taught not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse number 9, it says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so the Bible teaches us not to covet. I'm not saying you don't need to make money. No one, again, needs to be in a position of making money. But again, when it comes about greedy gain, it's seeking on a continual basis to be rich. The Bible encourages us not to be covetous. In other words, not to desire things that we do not have. So avoiding get-quick-rich schemes or whatever it might be, with something we would avoid and avoiding the lottery or avoiding some big gain, so to speak, some big gain scheme uh, that we could get wrapped up in. These could trouble our house. Uh, the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk 2 says this, Woe to him that coveth an evil covetousness. Want him that coveth an evil covetousness. Now, I think all covetousness is sin, but there's an evil covetousness that's mentioned there. Let's turn back to our text there in Proverbs chapter 15. There's a fourth common sense thought on wisdom that should be one that we should take into life. And uh, again, courage to remember when it comes to life. It's found in verse number 28. It says, The heart of the righteous studieth the answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. And so this verse would teach us to take time to offer an answer. When someone asks you a question or maybe someone answer, asks you advice, I believe again you should take time to answer. The Bible says he studieth to answer. And it mentions on the flip side, the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. And so it's easy sometimes for someone maybe to say, I got the answer for that. But sometimes it's best to study or to think before giving an answer. And so this is taught not only here, but other places. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 29. In uh, verse number 11, Proverbs 29, verse number 11, the Bible says, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. You know, people talk about, well, some people, they just tell you everything. There's some people that sometimes it's hard to get an answer on anything. In life, I believe, again, we should be studying or thinking before we answer 
And again, someone asks you about a purchase or maybe a choice that they're going to make. Maybe you should be best or I might be best to say, you know what, maybe I'll give you an answer in a few days on that matter. I want to think these things over or maybe let's talk about what you really are considering here. People want an answer quickly, right away. But have you ever been in a position where you answered right away or I answered right away and then you thought about it and said, you know, I shouldn't have answered that way. It might be best to answer more slowly than more quickly. You have the right to study to answer. You know, when it comes to our children, sometimes you can't give them a full answer. You know, I might ask you when you're little, well, where do babies come from? Well, of course, they get dropped off by the stork, right? No, you don't tell them that. What do you tell them? Well, you maybe ignore, or you might just tell them part of what happens there. Where do children go when they die? Maybe can't answer that question right away. Why is evolution wrong or whatever it might be? There might be some question a person gives you and they want a quick answer. And there are many times now, more than, than not, I will not give either sometimes a full answer or I'll wait to give a whole answer. Take time to offer an answer. And if they question, say, hey, why, why don't you just tell me what you think? Say, well, I don't know for sure what I think. Let's turn back to our text there, Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15, people should respect you for thinking or trying to think through a, a particular situation, considering the matter, considering, again, choices or considering maybe what could happen or might happen as in a given situation. Take time before offering an answer. I believe that's good wisdom shared with us from Proverbs we see also in verse number 29 and verse number 30, another thought here on the subject of prayer. We find the Bible, God hears the prayer of the righteous. Verse 29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoice the heart, and a good report maketh the bones fat. We can count on God listening to his children. God hears his children. He heareth the prayer of the righteous. We also know God helps and hears the righteous. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 34. Someone says, well, why should I pray? You know, God can do anything and everything. Why doesn't he just do things according to his will? He wants us to pray to show dependency. He wants us to pray to show trust. He wants us to pray so that we might find an answer and find joy in an answer. Psalm chapter 34 and verse number 15. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth them, uh, the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. And so we see in the Bible, God not only hears prayers, but he also listens to our prayers, and answers our prayers. And so, common sense truth, we ought to pray if we're saved by grace. And prayer should be a part of our life so that we can see God hear and answer our prayers. Again, just a common thought there given to us in the Proverbs. Let's go back to there, if you would, Proverbs chapter 15, a sixth thought here tonight. 
Um, be a good listener. Verse number 31 teaches us that. The Bible says, The ear that heareth, the reproof of life, abideth among the wise. If you want to be wise, be a good listener. Be a good listener. Again, that's something we should encourage our children to be a good listener. Why? So you can hear the reproofs of life. You can hear about what life is about. Listening will benefit us. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 19, verse number 20. It says, Hear counsel and receive instruction, that thou mayest be wise in the latter end. Say, why be a good listener? You'll be wiser in the end. Those that will listen will be wiser in the end. So be a good listener. And then finally, if you turn back to Proverbs chapter 15, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point either. Again, these are points that are taught throughout the Proverbs, certainly points that you might already know about in life. But in, in verse 32 and verse 33, it says, He that refuses instruction despises his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before hum honor is humility. And so even when it comes to reproof, I believe, again, it's connected with humility. Again, for us to take in instruction, we must be humble and being willing to be reproved or, re or corrected. And so I want to mention to you finally here tonight, we should embrace reproof and correction if we want to get understanding. Verse 32 Last part of the verse, he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. We need to embrace reproof. Reproof is normally constructive. It's normally for our own good. It's normally for our benefit. Be thankful for those that would reprove you or correct you even openly. They're doing it simply for your good. They're simply doing it to help you. Again, as we talk about, again, reproof, most people don't like to be reproved uh, and that sort of thing, or criticized. But tough talks lead to benefits and character. Verse 32, he that heareth reproof, get it, understanding. Hearing reproof will lead to understanding or wisdom and what to do. These are some thoughts here from the book of Proverbs, some common sense wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Seek to speak words that bring joy or encourage. Number two, find the way of life to avoid danger and death and destruction. Avoid being greedy of gain because it will trouble your own house. Take time to offer prayer to God because your prayers will be answered. Again, be a good listener. Embrace reproof and correction. And uh, all these things taught here in Proverbs chapter 15. Let's close as we consider the word of God here tonight. And thank you for your kind attention. Let's go ahead and pray. Action. And uh, as we consider this thought here tonight, I want you to think about these words. I hate every false way. Let's go ahead and pray here tonight. Lord, I thank you again for your word here tonight. As we get to understand what the Bible teaches, it's hard for a believer not to hate those things which would lead people in a false way. Again, this idea that salvation is by election or selection is contrary to the word of God and it sends people to a Christless eternity. Father, help us to understand here tonight that salvation is for whosoever will. It's for those that would choose to receive it. 
and help us again by your grace again to just understand this doctrine that is permeating many churches, even independent Baptist churches. We pray this in Jesus' name and for sake. Amen. You know, there are false ways that maybe don't really matter. We've talked about traditions over the last couple of weeks, and we've taught that we ought to reject the traditions of men and certainly should reject traditions that are created by men. And uh, we looked at, again, even last week, the idea of that of infant dedication uh, that's not found in the Bible. Uh, infant dedication, infant baptism isn't found in the Bible. Those are traditions that are started by men. Those weren't things taught to us to be taught to other people and to be uh, things that we follow after, but things that, again, have crept in because people just, just seems to be, they like to create their own religions, their own ways. And so we see here tonight that God would have us to hate those false ways. We need to be careful about teachings that are contrary to the word of God. You know, if you were a part of a Baptist church that was maybe called a Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, have you ever heard of a Sovereign Grace Baptist Church? Never heard of a Sovereign Grace. Have you heard of, again, a, a church that maybe is called a Reformed Baptist Church? We have one right here in town, right? Reformed Baptist Church right north of the high school. And uh, someone says, well, what separates that kind of a church from maybe this kind of church? Baptist Church, Baptist Church. You know, whatever, I, you know, what, what separates, what makes these things different? Well, they embrace the doctrine of salvation by election or salvation by what I'd rather call selection. What does this mean? Let me say this, that their teaching and churches like that teach that some are selected or elected to go to heaven and some are selected and elected to go to hell. Some people will say, well, how does anybody ever come up with such ideas? Well, just like the Jews had their ideas about, you know, washing your hands and pots and pans and all these kinds of things, people come up with ideas and they teach them as doctrine. And so I want to begin here by exposing this doctrine by, first of all, just telling you what this false teaching states. And if you're familiar with this author, he's someone you could uh, look up right now on your phone and, and, and go over to CBD and Christian Book Distributors and, and uh, pick out the name A.W. Pink, a very famous author amongst the electionists, or we would say Calvinists. And uh, I just want to start by giving you some thoughts about what he and others teach about salvation by election. I'm going to quote directly from what he's written. He says about five-point Calvinism, and again, that's what we call it. They call it the same thing. What does the word election mean? It signifies to single out, to select, to choose, to take one and to leave another. Election means that God has singled out certain ones to be objects of his saving grace, while others are left to suffer the just punishment of their sins. It means before the foundation of the world, God chose out of the masses of our fallen humanity a certain number and a predestinated ones that would be conformed to the image of his son. I don't know if you understand that. 
But what it's saying is that God has picked out of humanity some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. I mean, those aren't his exact words. He says it a little differently. He says, election means that God has singled out certain ones to be subjects of his saving grace, while others are left to suffer the just punishment for their sins. Well, there's, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And some would say, well, we all deserve the just punishment of our sins, but to elect some, to say some would be signaled out to be elected, to leave some to be objects of his saving grace and others to be in a place that they would be condemned to hell. And God doing that from the foundation of the world. He just chose some. Now that's A.W. Pink. That's a Calvinist writer. He writes many books about Calvinism. I just know, I just know this. I, have a, uh, I, ha- I used to have a couple, I think three, four of his books before. I've whittled it down to just one. And the reason I have that one, it does tell you a lot of things he teaches in that one. But uh, he's infiltrated many Baptist churches. They're independent Baptists that start reading A.W. Pink, and you know what? Before they know it, they're saying some are going to go to heaven and some are going to go to hell. And you say, why is that? Because they believe God is sovereign. God is so powerful that you have no way that you can choose. And so he in his grace chooses some and some he doesn't. Again, I'll read again another thought from the Confession of Faith of a Calvinistic organization going back to 1689. And it talks about this idea of election or selection here. I just read to you what they write. Again, this is false. It's not true. He says here, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others, being left to the action of their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Some predestinated according to the glorious grace and some predestinate to condemnation, the praise of his glorious justice. Someone says those are crazy ideas, but those are the thoughts that basically are behind salvation by election or salvation by selection. I want to expose tonight what this teaching entails because it's needful you to consider it here. I would guess that some of you have met someone who goes to Reformed Church, a Reformed Lutheran Church, Reformed Baptist Church, Reformed Presbyterian Church. You can go on with Reformed. If it says Reformed on the front side, you can guarantee that they believe in the doctrines of predestination or election. There could be an oddball church out that doesn't do that, but you find, again, many times with Baptist churches, they'll use, again, names like grace churches. Grace churches. Well, they redefine grace, just like, other churches redefine grace. Grace is works, according to some churches. Grace here is something only God can do in churches that believe in so-called sovereign grace and other doctrines that follow after this. 
But there's one passage of scripture that is like TNT to their teachings. Let's turn over there, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's like TNT to their teachings. How they get around this, how they get by it, how they go under and over it, I don't know how they do it. Again, I, I understand, I've heard again, and I've uh, even dealt with Calvinists before concerning their teachings and their practices. Again, there are different variances in some of them and what they believe, but uh, their main point in their belief system is that salvation that comes from God is something that is imparted to man before the foundation of the world and is imparted to man uh, based on God's selection of certain to be saved, certain individuals to be saved. First Timothy here, chapter 2, and verse number 3 through verse number 6. Paul certainly did not teach along these lines. The scriptures do not teach along these lines. But uh, I want to read here 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 3 through 6. It says, For this is good and acceptable unto in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I mean, this passage of Scripture destroys everything that deals with Calvinism. To say some are selected and some aren't? What does it say in verse 4? Who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? Does that mean some or just part, the select, the elect, whatever they want to come up with as far as people are concerned? No, it says here, all men to be saved. So it doesn't matter who's born into this world. He'd have everyone to be saved. It also says that in verse number six, it says, for he gave himself a ransom for who? For the elect? No, for all. To be tested by a due time. God sent forth a meteor, Christ, to bring God and man together. And he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so when we talk about Calvinism, it's about teaching that some are selected for heaven and some are selected for hell. You don't know which ones. So someone says, well, you know, the preacher who's Calvinist, he'll preach the gospel to people because that's a duty for him to do. He doesn't know who the select or the elect are and and, and so he does that out of duty and responsibility of the gospel. But I want to mention here tonight, where did, where did the roots of Calvinism or the roots of this idea of election or selection come from? I want to start out just by looking at where the beginnings of this kind of thought process of, of some being elected or selected or predestinated these beliefs began with the Stoics around the first century. A teacher by the name of Zeno in the third century actually came out and kind of put things together. He taught the doctrine of absolute predestination of all things in Athens. The Stoics believed everything was determined by fate, that everything was predestinated by God. So what are the thoughts? 
Everything that happens, happens through God's power and through God's election. All things are predestinated and there's fate involved. And so that's the Stoics. Again, the thoughts of the Stoics aren't exactly the thoughts of the Calvinists, but they're very close. And that's kind of where things started. But if you go back to John chapter 8, and some would say, well, they even went back further, really, if you think about it, where, where did the ideas of election or selection come from? Well, they come from the thoughts of men. They come from actually the thoughts of the Pharisees to some degree. If you turn here to John chapter 8, verse number 41 through verse number 44, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees concerning their spiritual condition. And uh, I want to pick up here in John chapter 8, verse number 41. It says, Ye do the deeds of, the, of your father, then saith he unto him, that we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I out of myself, but, you, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Ye of your father, the devil, the lust of your father you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not to truth, because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. If you go back to verse number 33, it says this, And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? Ye shall be made free. Never in bondage. Never in sin's bondage. And it talks about they're never in bondage. We are Abraham's seed. You know, the Pharisees had a thought process that they believed that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were saved by grace. That's salvation by election or salvation by selection also. Someone says, well, the Pharisees, what did they believe? They, they believed they were right with God. They were of God. Look at verse number 40. On, we have one father, even God. So they say God's their father. But what did Jesus say? He didn't say that. Verse 44. You have your father, the devil. So what does he say? He says, you have your father is the devil. is saying that you guys are saved by grace. You are, your father isn't the father above. You're of the devil. They might have thought their heritage made them the children of God, God's children. Just like a lot of people today think. We're all God's children. What do you think that is? That's salvation by election or selection. That's saying because... I grew up in a Christian home. That means our, our, our children are, 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 are Christians. And that means everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. And we're religious and we claim to be Christians. We follow the teachings of Christianity. And so we're, we're all good here. There are variances in this. But yet, you know that some teach salvation by election or selection. Augustine came around there later, a Catholic bishop, and he taught absolute predestination his beliefs were radical i think even for radicals that would think you know the beliefs are radical he said this infants are elect some infants go to heaven some infants go to hell what is that saying well why do they push for infant baptism so early because the infants can even go to heaven and infants can go to hell 
Augustine, Catholic bishop, came up with those kinds of thinkings, and someone says, well, why do people push for people to get baptized so early? Because they think baptism brings someone to heaven and someone goes to hell if they're not baptized. That's kind of a salvation by election selection too, isn't it? Okay, you've been baptized, you're good. You go to heaven. You haven't been baptized? You could be condemned to hell. Someone says, well, salvation by election, that's not only Calvinist. No, it's not all Calvinist, but it has infiltrated other churches and denomination too. But the roots come from the Stoics or the Pharisees and others who just believe, you know, some are children of God, some aren't. The ideas of Augustine were adopted by the Catholic Church around 400 AD and his pedigree still has great influence on the Catholic views today. The views of Calvinism, John Calvin and his Westminster Confession in 1648 have similar thoughts about selection and election in them. Calvinism influenced many throughout Switzerland and throughout Europe concerning Calvinist ideologies. Calvinist churches or Calvinistic churches or Dutch Reformed churches. No Reformed church. I know one not long, not far from here. Presbyterian churches, Calvinistic Baptist churches, Sovereign Grace churches, Calvinistic Methodist churches, on and on it goes. And so when we talk about some believing in this kind of salvation, it's not something that's not taught to some degree in a lot of different denominations. Even Lutheranism, Lutheran Reformed churches teach along the same line. Let's turn to John chapter 7. That is that some are elected or selected to heaven and others are selected or elected to hell. Now, people would say, well, that's just the way it is. The Bible talks about the elect. And the elect are talked about in the Bible. But they misinterpret those passages that deal with election. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7, verse number 18. I just want to mention again, when we talk about the ideas of uh, election or selection, I want to talk here mainly tonight here about Calvinism. Calvinism is made up of five parts commonly called TULIP. And uh, those five parts are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. I'm going to talk about the first four here, maybe tonight, maybe I won't, I'll see how far I get. But the first of them is called total depravity. That is that man is beyond self-help, totally unable to deliver himself from the bondage of sin. Someone says, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you can't do anything to be saved. Man is unable to believe. Man is unable to repent. God must give him faith. God must cause him to repent. Man must give him grace. On and on it goes. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, you say, what is this? Where do they get this from? Well, Partly from this verse here, Romans chapter 7, verse number 18. For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, 
but how to form that which is good I find not. And they look at those words there. There's, there's nothing in my flesh. There's no good thing in my flesh. There's nothing that man can do in himself to be saved. I'm going to just read to you the words of Dwayne Spencer, a grace Orthodox Presbyterian pastor. He writes about total depravity. Again, this summarizes. He's from Texas, San Antonio, Texas. Man's depravity is a result of the fall, and it is total. He does not possess free will because he is bound to Satan who takes him captive at his will. Man cannot make a good spiritual act. He is incapable of good unless God overrules and overpowers him. Now, some people like this. Just think about the doctrines here. You don't have to be concerned about yourself getting saved or someone else getting saved because it's God that's going to have to overpower you. It's God that's going to have to bring salvation to you. Man is incapable of saving himself, and we know man can't save himself, but is he not involved with salvation? Total depravity says you have really no will, no free will. You are not a free moral agent. But is that what the Bible teaches? Let's turn to uh, John chapter 1. Can you not make a choice? There will be people that hear my voice and have heard my voice over the years and have heard the voices of preachers over the, of the years and they will reject the salvation of God and there will be some that decide to receive the salvation of God and it will be their choice. Nobody else's choice. I can't make that choice. You can't make that choice. Nobody can make that choice. John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, it says he came on to his own, and his own received him not. What is that talking about? It's talking about the Jews. The Jews heard about Jesus. Many of them did. And they didn't receive him. But it says on the flip side, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So what is this passage saying? It's saying some received him, not some received him. How did they receive them? Because they chose to receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Because they chose not to believe in him. They chose that he, I will not believe he is the Messiah. I will believe that he is not the Lamb of God. And there are others that said, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, like John the Baptist, and said, I believe him. I trust him. Free will, free moral agent. That's what the Bible teaches. Let's turn to John chapter 8. All over in the book of John and in the book of Acts and other places, I'll read a few passages that would help support the idea that man is not told to depraved. He is involved with salvation. He is not able or capable of saving himself, but he is capable of believing or not believing. John chapter 8, verse number 24 John 8, verse 24. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for ye, if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. You're not going to believe that he's he, he's the Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. But look at verse 30 again. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews that believed on him, if you continue my word, then you are my disciples indeed. 
Many believed on him. How do they believe? They used their mind to believe. Through their heart, they believe. John 6, 64, just backing up here a little bit. John 6, 64, it says, But there are some of them that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should destroy them. You know what that's saying? It's saying that God, does, God knows who's going to believe. He does know who's, who's going to believe. He knows if you're going to believe. He knows if I'm going to believe. He knows who's going to believe. But it says there, what does it say? But it says, but there are some of you that believe not. You chose not to believe. John chapter 5, verse 40, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Does that sound like a person can't have any involvement with their salvation? No, it, it, it sounds to me like people don't want to be involved with their sal salvation. Ye will not. Ye will not. Sounds like you have a will. You choose not. Over and over again, the, the Bible teaches, whosoever will, as the song we sing tonight, may come. Some believe, some believe not. Let's turn to Acts chapter 17. You're going to have the choice. This world has a choice to believe or not believe. It's up to you. It's up to everyone. Whether they believe the word of God and the things of God and the salvation of God or they choose not to believe. Paul preached and some believed. Look at verse 4. Acts 17 verse 4. And some believed of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas of the devout Greeks, a multitude of the chief women, not a few, but the Jews which believed not. Some of them believed. I have that underlined the front of verse 4, and then I have in verse 5, and the Jews which believed not. You know, people would have you in this, again, spiritual system of Calvinism to believe you can't even do it. You're so depraved. You're so wicked. You're so vile. In fact, when you hear preaching of the sovereign grace kind, it'll be very much along that line. So you don't have the ability. There's nothing in you. You can't even get your mind wrapped around it. Men love darkness rather than lights because their deeds are evil. You're never going to come to the light because you're not going to uh, believe these sorts of things. Total depravity says you're so depraved, so fallen astray, you can't even choose to be saved or choose not to be saved. That is total depravity. And then they teach, secondly, unconditional election. And what is unconditional election? We're talking about election. Again, this Spencer says of election, he, that is God, must open the heart it causes elect to will and to do that which is pleasing to him. Otherwise, none would believe. God, open your heart and cause. I mean, here's God. He comes along and he's going to enter into your life and it's cause you to believe. You're not going to have a choice here. He's going to cause you to believe. To me, that's just absolutely robotical. That doesn't have anything to do with the Bible and the scripture and the way that God functions. God doesn't come along and all of a sudden, so to speak, cause a person to do anything or not do anything. God chooses 
Again, he chooses and he will, again, know, he has knowledge of who the elect are, who the chosen ones will be, but he doesn't force anyone. Look at Acts 17, we're so close there, just forward, verse number 30. Acts 17, verse 30, it says, At the times of this ignorance, God winked it, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Did he call some to repent? The elect ones to repent? No, it says he calls all men to repent. Unconditional election. According to the Westminster Confession, again, i just reading right from, uh, again, parts of their confession. It says, By the decree of God, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life. Others are ordained to everlasting death. Someone says, this is terrible to hear these things. Yeah, because you believe in whosoever will. You believe you have a choice. The Bible teaches we have a choice. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10, verse number 48. But there are people trapped in this religious system, just like they're trapped in other religious systems. And they believe, again, to be saved. It'll be whether they're elected, whether they're selected, whether God will come along and and work in their heart or give them salvation, change their will, change their lives by his power somehow. Yet you see here in verse number, Acts chapter 10, verse 42 and verse 43, it says, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that is that which was ordained of God to be judged the quick and dead and to give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever Believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Whosoever believeth. People have the ability to believe and people have the ability to believe not. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what Acts 16 verse 31 tells us. Do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Yet Calvinists believe wrongly that there are certain that are going to be saved, there are certain that are going to be lost, and it has all to do with these doctrines around selection and election. Another doctrine that goes along that lines, again, the L of TULIP is limited atonement. And I just want to mention again what that's about. And I do these things to expose what they believe, but also to show what the Bible teaches. Dwayne Spencer, again, pastor of that church there, mentioned from Texas, mentions blood atonement is for the elect only. Since God died only for those whom the Father gave him to be his bride. Atonement's for the elect only? Boy, I'd be sad if I wasn't elected. I had no opportunity. There's no possibility for me. I wasn't selected. And, and, and blood atonement, Jesus died on the cross, not for me, but just for those elect only. Is that what the Bible teaches? He died for the elect only? Or does the Bible teach universal atonement? Not limited, but universal, or I would say unlimited atonement. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Is, is, is the blood of Jesus, is it limited to those who will be saved by grace or is it given so that all men could be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Hebrews chapter 2, at verse number 9, the Bible says, For we uh, see Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, that, uh, 
lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For every man. He died for every man. He died for you. He died for every person. Not just for the elect. He died for all. His atonement was for all. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, uh, if someone, again, uh, is, is of a Calvinistic nature and you say, oh man, I wonder what I should do with this guy. I, I wonder how I could talk to him about uh, maybe the salvation that's available for all. Well, it's back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 6, it says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom. A redemption ransom. A blood ransom. That we could all be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Blood atonement is for everyone. And uh, I just want to mention again here, someone who wrote on the subject of atonement, Paul Reeder wrote on the subject of atonement, and he wrote this, Christ died for all, and he put after that Isaiah 53, 6. He died for every man, Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9. He died for the world, John chapter 3, verse 16. He died for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. He died for false teachers, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 1. He died for the Jews, John chapter 11, verse 30, uh, sorry, verse 50 and 51. He died for many, Matthew chapter 20, verse number 28. He died for the church, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And he died for me, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Limited atonement? Totally unscriptural. Full, free, unlimited atonement is scriptural. Limited atonement is totally made up by men. Just like the, the Pharisees made up their laws. So they did. Finally, I want to talk to you quickly about and this, again, to me, is just crazy. Irresistible grace. I like the thought of it being irresistible, but not how they think it's irresistible. Dwayne Spencer says the elect will find Christ irresistible. It's not. That doesn't even line up with the Bible. It doesn't even line up with the Bible. The Bible says unto them that believe he is precious. If you believe he's precious... You don't find him irresistible before salvation. You find him precious after salvation. God can be resisted. You can say all you want that his grace is so powerful that you'll just be attracted to it somehow or something along that lines. But the Bible teaches resistance to the grace of God. But yet, I want to make this point, and it's important, God assists in the grace of God. Let's turn to John chapter 6. God assists in the grace of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is involved with salvation. I mean, God doesn't overrun the will, but he works with the will. And he works to bring people towards his son. John chapter 6 and verse number 44, is he irresistible? No, I don't believe he's irresistible because you find people resist his will. John chapter 6, verse 44, 
The Bible says here, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up on the last uh, day. You know, that's what separates us from the Armenians and the Calvinists, is that God there is involved there. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him. So God is involved with drawing people to salvation. Doesn't mean he forces it on them. Just means he's involved with it. Yet you find in the Bible, some believe and some believe not. Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Felix trembled at the words of the grace of God. He resisted salvation. Let's turn to Acts chapter 7. There are people all around the world in all kinds of different places with hearing the gospel message over years and decades and through the centuries have heard about the gospel, the grace of God. The Spirit of God has come along and, and drawn them toward salvation. As a loving Father, He draws them to the cross, to a salvation that's full and free, and yet He doesn't push or compel or force anyone to be saved. Acts chapter 7, verse number 51. The Bible says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed on them with their teeth. Talked about how they were hard-hearted. They resisted the Holy Ghost of God. So the Holy Ghost of God can be something that's rejected and resisted. You know, someone can say, well, you know, someone just needs to hear the gospel message. They hear the gospel message and they're part of the elect. They're just going to just decide to follow Jesus. No, they're going to have to decide to follow Jesus themselves. And uh, as we talk about the, the doctrines of Calvinism, I want to just say their last point, the P of Tulip, is very close to be scriptural. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 37. The last point of Tulip is the perseverance of the saints. That is, salvation can never be lost. Salvation can never be lost. The perseverance of the saints, that means that those that are saved by grace will persevere in that salvation experience. And, and that's certainly something taught throughout the scripture that if someone gets saved by grace, they're never going to perish, they're going to persevere, they're going to be saved by grace, they cannot be lost again. Uh, we, we talk about that doctrine not as the persevered, but preservation of the saints, or we talk about eternal security. It's basically the same doctrine. Uh, Psalm 37, verse number 28, says this, The Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked should be cut off. It's one of those great Bible verses in the Old Testament on eternal security. They're preserved for when? Forever. Saints will persevere. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. They pass from death unto life, John chapter 5, verse 24. They'll never perish, John chapter 10, verse number 28 through 30. He that believeth hath everlasting night and will not come in condemnation, but will pass from death unto life. Let's turn to Psalm 119, verse number 104. You know, I believe this doctrine of election or selection is something that God hates. 
It's something that, again, brings, again, different people to a place where maybe they think they're right. Because in those churches, they get taught the Bible a lot. And they get taught what their teachers would teach them. But in this area of salvation, they're certainly far off the mark. Psalm 119, verse 104 says, through thy, uh, through thy precepts I gain understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Reformers, Calvinists, we see these off on this idea of selection or election. Some elected to heaven, some elected to hell. It's certainly a very bad thing. And so, again, you'll see in the Bible, salvation is by grace, and it's unlimited, and it's for all. Let's close as we consider the word of God here tonight.